Welcome to Dreamful Podcast, bedtime stories for slumber. I would like to start off this episode by thanking our newest Patreon supporters, Katherine Richardson, Theodore Ricketts, Jen Hazel, and Christopher. Thank you all so much, and I hope you have the sweetest of dreams. If you would also like to contribute to the creation of Dreamful, while getting access to over 20 bonus episodes and other goodies like holographic stickers and behind-the-scenes extras, please visit dreamfulstories.com where you can find info about the show and on the support page, there's a link to become a Patreon subscriber or make a one-time donation. When I am having trouble sleeping, it usually has a lot to do with my anxiety levels. That's why this episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs with a quick and comprehensive survey and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 24 hours in a safe and private online environment with the convenience of skipping an uncomfortable waiting room. Send a message to your counselor anytime and receive timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, schedule weekly video or phone sessions. This service is available for clients worldwide and you can find a licensed professional counselor that specializes in your specific needs, whether that be depression, sleeping, family conflicts, trauma, and much more. Best of all, it's more affordable than offline counseling and financial aid is available. Start living a happier life today. As a listener Dreamful, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com dreamful. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, help spelled H-E-L-P dot com slash dreamful. This episode is also sponsored by Plum Deluxe. Plum Deluxe is a family-owned premium tea company that makes their teas in-house using their own unique and delicious recipes. Their reading nook blend of black tea, lavender, rose, and chamomile will make you want to curl up with a good book. And if you're having trouble sleeping, you might want to try their incredible selection of bedtime teas, including the nightcap herbal tea with valerian root and peppermint. One of my favorites and an absolute showstopper at tea time is the magical butterfly herbal tea. It has a unique blend of berries and a splash of creamy vanilla topped off with vibrant butterfly pea flowers, which turn the tea into a gorgeous shade of blue. It is pure magic in a cup. You can sign up to become a Tea Club member for as little as $10 a month and receive monthly premium seasonal teas made just for club members. Plum Deluxe has the only tea subscription where you can specify ingredient allergies or request no caffeine. As an added bonus, Tea Club members get regular perks and free shipping on all purchases. Visit plumdeluxe.com dreamful to shop their amazing selection of premium teas blended to perfection and enter code dreamful at checkout for 10% off your purchase or 20% off your first order when you sign up to become a Tea Club member. Again, that's plumdeluxe.com dreamful. I have also put a link in the show notes. For this episode, I let the members of the Patreon team decide what the story would be 
and Sherlock Holmes won by a landslide. I hope you enjoy one of my favorite Sherlock Holmes cases, A Scandal in Bohemia. So, snuggle up in your blankets and have sweet dreams. To Sherlock Holmes, she is always the woman. I've seldom heard him mention her under any other name. In his eyes, she eclipses and predominates the whole of her gender. It was not that he felt any emotion akin to love for Irene Adler. All emotions, and that one particularly, were abhorrent to his cold precise but admirably balanced mind. He was, I take it, the most perfect reasoning and observing machine that the world has ever seen. But as a lover, he would have placed himself in a false position. He never spoke of the softer passions. They were admirable things for the observer, excellent for drawing the veil from men's motives and actions. But for the trained reasoner to admit such intrusions into his own delicate and finely adjusted temperament was to introduce a distracting factor which might throw a doubt upon all his mental results. Grit in a sensitive instrument or a crack in one of his own high-power lenses would not be more disturbing than a strong emotion in a nature such as his. And yet... There was but one woman to him, and that woman was the late Irene Adler, of dubious and questionable memory. One night, I was returning from a journey to a patient, for I now returned to civil practice, when my way led me through Baker Street. As I passed the well-remembered door, I was seized with a keen desire to see Holmes again, and to know how he was employing his extraordinary powers. His rooms were brilliantly lit, and even as I looked up, I saw his tall, spare figure pass twice in a dark silhouette against the blind. He was pacing the room swiftly, eagerly, with his head sunk upon his chest, and his hands clasped behind him. To me, who knew his every mood and habit, his attitude and manner told their own story. He was at work again. He was hot upon the scent of some new problem. I rang the bell and was shown up to the apartment, which had formerly been in part my own. He was glad, I think, to see me. With hardly a word spoken, but with a kindly eye, he waved me to an armchair, threw across his case of cigars, and indicated a spirit case in the corner. Then he stood before the fire and looked me over in a singular, introspective fashion. 
what luck suits you, he remarked. I think, Watson, that you've put on seven and a half pounds since I saw you. Seven, I answered. Indeed, I should have thought a little more, and in practice again, I observe. How do you know? I see it, I deduce it. How do I know that you have been getting yourself very wet lately, and that you have a most clumsy and careless servant girl? My dear Holmes, I said, this is too much. You would certainly have been burned had you lived a few centuries ago. It is true that I had my country walk on Thursday, and came home in a dreadful mess. But as I have changed my clothes, I can't imagine how you deduce it. As to Mary Jane, she is incorrigible, and my wife has given her notice. But there, again, I fail to see how you work it out. He chuckled to himself and rubbed his long, nervous hands together. It is simplicity itself, he said. My eyes tell me that on the inside of your left shoe, just where the firelight strikes it, the leather is scored by six almost parallel cuts. Obviously, they have been caused by someone who has very carelessly scraped around the edges of the sole in order to remove crusted mud from it. Hence, you see, my double deduction that you have been out in vile weather and that you had a particularly malignant boot-slitting maid. As to your practice, if a gentleman walks into my room smelling of iodoform with a black mark of nitrate of silver upon his right forefinger and a bulge on the right side of his top hat to show where he has secreted his stethoscope, I must be dull indeed if I do not pronounce him to be an active member of the medical profession. I could not help laughing at the ease with which he explained his process of deduction. When I hear you give your reasons, I remarked, the thing always appears to me to be so ridiculously simple that I could easily do it myself, though at each successive instance of your reasoning, I am baffled until you explain your process. And yet, I believe that my eyes are as good as yours. Quite so, he answered, lighting a cigarette and throwing himself down into an armchair. You see, but you do not observe. The distinction is clear. By the way, since you are interested in these little problems, and since you are good enough to chronicle one or two of my trifling experiences, you may be interested in this. He threw over a sheet of thick, pink-tinted notepaper, which had been lying open upon the table. It came by the last post, he said. Read it aloud. The note was undated, and without either signature or address. It read, They will call upon you tonight at a quarter to eight o'clock. A gentleman who desires to consult you upon a matter of the very deepest moment. Your recent services to one of the royal houses of Europe have shown that you are one who may safely be trusted with the matters which are of an importance which can hardly be exaggerated. This account of you we have from all quarters received. Be in your chamber then at that hour, and do not take it amiss if your visitor wears a mask. 
This is indeed a mystery, I remarked. What do you imagine that means? The note itself. What do you deduce from it? He asked. I carefully examined the writing and the paper upon which it was written. The man who wrote it was presumably well-to-do, I remarked, endeavoring to imitate my companion's processes. Such paper cannot be bought under half a crown a packet. It is peculiarly strong and stiff. Peculiar. That is the very word, said Holmes. It is not an English paper at all. Hold it up to the light. I did so, and saw a large E with a small G. A P and a large G with a small T woven into the texture of the paper. What do you make of that? asked Holmes. The paper was made in Bohemia, I said. Precisely. And do you note the peculiar construction of the sentence? The man who wrote the note is a German. It only remains, therefore, to discover what is wanted by this German who writes upon bohemian paper and prefers wearing a mask to showing his face. And here he comes, if I am not mistaken, to resolve all our doubts. As he spoke, there was the sharp sound of horses' hooves and grating wheels against the curb, followed by a sharp pull at the bell. Holmes whistled. A pair by the sound, he said. Yes, he continued, glancing out of the window. A nice little pair of beauties. A hundred and fifty guineas apiece. There's money in this case, Watson, if there is nothing else. A slow and heavy step, which had been heard upon the stairs and in the passage, paused immediately outside the door. Then there was a loud and authoritative tap. Come in, said Holmes. A man entered who could hardly have been less than six feet, six inches in height, with the chest and limbs of a Hercules. His dress was rich with a richness which would, in England, be looked upon as akin to bad taste. The deep blue cloak which was thrown over his shoulders was lined with flame-colored silk and secured at the neck with a brooch which consisted of a single flaming barrel, boots which extended halfway up his calves, and which were trimmed at the tops with rich brown fur, completed the impression of barbaric opulence which was suggested by his whole appearance. He carried a broad-brimmed hat in his hand, while he wore across the upper part of his face a black mask, which he had apparently adjusted that very moment for his hand was still raised to it as he entered. "'You had my note?' he asked with a deep, harsh voice and a strongly marked German accent. "'I told you that I would call.' "'Pray, take a seat,' said Holmes. "'This is my friend and colleague, Dr. Watson, who is occasionally good enough to help me in my cases. Whom have I the honor to address?' "'He may address me as the Count von Krem.' A bohemian nobleman. I must begin, he continued, by binding you both to absolute secrecy for two years. At the end of that time, the matter will be of no importance. I promise, said Holmes. 
You will excuse this mask, continued our strange visitor. The person who employs me wishes his agent to be you. And I may confess at once that the title by which I have just called myself is not exactly my own. I was aware of it, said Holmes dryly. And every precaution has to be taken to quench what might grow to be an immense scandal and seriously compromise one of the reigning families of Europe. To speak plainly, the matter implicates the great house of Ormstein, hereditary kings of Bohemia. I was also aware of that, murmured Holmes, settling himself down in his armchair and closing his eyes. Our visitor glanced with some apparent surprise at the languid, lounging figure of the man who had been no doubt depicted to him as the most incisive reasoner and most energetic agent in Europe. Holmes slowly reopened his eyes and looked impatiently at his gigantic client. If your majesty would condescend to state your case, he remarked, I should be better able to advise you. The man sprang from his chair in uncontrollable agitation. Then, with a gesture of desperation, he tore the mask from his face and hurled it upon the ground. You are right, he cried. I am the king. Why should I attempt to conceal it? Why indeed, murmured Holmes. Your majesty has not spoken before I was aware that I was addressing Grand Duke of Castle Felstein and hereditary king of Bohemia. But you can understand, said our strange visitor, sitting down once more and passing his hand over his high white forehead. The matter was so delicate that I could not confide it to an agent without putting myself in his power. I have come for the purpose of consulting you. Then consult, said Holmes, shutting his eyes once more. Some five years ago, during a lengthy visit to Warsaw, I made the acquaintance of the well-known adventuress, Irene Adler. The name is no doubt familiar to you. Let me see, said Holmes. The prima donna imperial opera of Warsaw retired from the operatic stage and now living in London. Your Majesty, as I understand, became entangled with this young person, wrote her some compromising letters, and is now desirous of getting those letters back. Precisely so. But how? Was there a secret marriage? None. No legal papers or certificates? None. Then I failed to follow your majesty. If this young person should produce her letters for blackmailing or other purposes, how is she to prove their authenticity? She has my photograph. We were both in the photograph. Oh dear, that is very bad. Your Majesty has indeed committed an indiscretion. I was only Crown Prince then. I was young. It must be recovered. We have tried and failed. She will not sell them. Stolen then. Five attempts have been made. Twice burglars in my pay ransacked her house. Once we diverted her luggage when she traveled. Twice she has been waylaid. There has been no result. 
No sign of it? Absolutely none. And what does she propose to do with the photograph? To ruin me. I am about to be married to the second daughter of the King of Scandinavia. You may know the strict principles of her family. She is herself the very soul of delicacy. A shadow of doubt as my conduct would bring the matter to an end. And Irene Adler threatens to send them the photograph. And she will do it. I know that she will do it. You do not know her, but she has a soul of steel. She has the face of the most beautiful of women and the mind of the most resolute of men. Rather than I should marry another woman, there are no lengths to which she would not go. None. You are sure that she has not sent it yet? I am sure. And why? Because she has said that she would send it on the day when the betrothal was publicly proclaimed. That will be next Monday. Oh, then we have three days yet said Holmes with a yawn. That is very fortunate, as I have one or two matters of importance to look into, just at present. Then, as to the money? The king took a heavy leather bag from under his cloak and laid it on the table. There are three hundred pounds in gold and seven hundred in notes, he said. Holmes scribbled a receipt upon a sheet of his notebook and handed it to him. And Irene's address, he asked, is Briney Lodge, Serpentine Avenue, St. John's Wood. Then good night, your majesty, and I trust that we shall soon have some good news for you. And good night, Watson, he added, as the wheels of the royal carriage rolled down the street. If you will be good enough to call tomorrow afternoon at three o'clock, I should like to chat this little matter over with you. At three o'clock precisely, I was at Baker Street, but Holmes had not yet returned. I sat down beside the fire, however, with the intention of awaiting him, however long he might be. It was close upon four before the door opened, and a drunken-looking groom, ill-kempt and side-whiskered, with an inflamed face and disreputable clothes, walked into the room. Accustomed as I was to my friend's amazing powers in the use of disguises, I had to look three times before I was certain that it was indeed Mr. Holmes. With a nod, he vanished into the bedroom, whence he emerged in five minutes, tweed-suited and respectable. Putting his hands into his pockets, he stretched out his legs in front of the fire and laughed heartily for some minutes. I suppose that you have been watching the habits and perhaps the house of Miss Irene Adler, I mused. Quite so. I left the house a little after eight o'clock this morning in the character of a groom out of work. I soon found Briney Lodge. It is a villa with a garden at the back, but built out in front right up to the road. Large sitting room on the right side, well furnished with long windows almost to the floor. Behind, there was nothing remarkable, 
I then lounged down the street and found, as I expected, that there was a muse in the lane which runs down by one wall of the garden. I lent the ostlers a hand in rubbing down their horses and received in exchange two pence and as much information as I could desire about Miss Adler. And what of Irene Adler? I asked. Oh, she has turned all the men's heads down that part. She lives quietly, sings at concerts, drives out at five every day, and returns at seven sharp for dinner. Has only one male visitor, but a good deal of him. He is a Mr. Godfrey Norton of the Inner Temple. This Godfrey Norton was evidently an important factor in the matter. He was a lawyer. That sounded ominous. What was the relation between them? And what the object of his repeated visits? Was she his client, his friends, or his mistress? If the former, she had probably transferred the photograph to his keeping. If the latter, it was less likely. On the issue of this question depended whether I should continue my work at Bryony Lodge or turn my attention to the gentleman's chambers in the temple. I fear that I bore you with these details, but I have to let you see my little difficulties if you are to understand the situation. Holmes continued. I was still balancing the matter in my mind when a cab drove up to Briony Lodge and a gentleman sprang out. He was a remarkably handsome man, dark and mustached, evidently the man of whom I had heard. He appeared to be in a great hurry, shouted to the cabman to wait, and brushed past the maid who opened the door with the air of a man who was thoroughly at home. Presently he emerged, looking even more flurried than before. As he stepped up to the cab, he pulled a gold watch from his pocket and looked at it earnestly. Drive like the devil, he shouted. Church of St. Monica in the Edgware Road. Half a guinea if you do it in twenty minutes. Away they went, and I was just wondering whether I should not do well to follow them. When up the lane came a neat little Landau. It hadn't pulled up before she shot out of the hall door and into it. I only caught a glimpse of her at the moment, but she was a lovely woman with a face that a man might die for. The Church of St. Monica, John, she cried, and half a sovereign if you reach it in twenty minutes. This was quite too good to lose, Watson. I was just balancing whether I should run for it when a cab came through the street. It was twenty-five minutes to twelve, and of course it was clear enough what was in the wind. My cabbie drove fast, I don't think I ever drove faster, but the others were there before us. I paid the man and hurried into the church. There was not a soul there save the two whom I had followed, and a clergyman. They were all three standing in a knot in front of the altar. Suddenly, to my surprise, the three at the altar faced round to me, and Godfrey Norton came running as hard as he could towards me. He cried, You'll do. Come, come. I was half-dragged up to the altar, and before I knew where I was, I found myself mumbling responses which were whispered in my ear, and vouching for things of which I knew nothing, and generally assisting in the secure tying up of Irene Adler, spinster, to Godfrey Norton, bachelor. It was all done in an instant. 
and there was the gentleman thanking me on the one side and the lady on the other. It was the most preposterous position in which I have ever found myself in my life, and it was the thought of it that started me laughing just now. This is a very unexpected turn of affairs, I said. And what then? Well, I found my plans very seriously menaced. It looked as if the pair might take an immediate departure, and so necessitate very prompt and energetic measures on my part. At the church door, however, they separated. I shall drive out in the park at five as usual, she said as she left him. I heard no more. They drove away in different directions, and I went off to make my own arrangements. By the way, doctor, I shall want your cooperation. I shall be delighted. You don't mind breaking the law? Not in the least. Nor running a chance of arrest? Not in a good cause. Oh, the cause is excellent. Then I am your man. But what is it you wish? It is nearly five now. In two hours, we must be on the scene of action. Miss Irene, or Madame, rather, returns from her drive at seven. We must be at Briny Lodge to meet her. And what then? You must leave that to me. I have already arranged what is to occur. There is only one point on which I must insist. You must not interfere, come what may. You understand? There will probably be some small unpleasantness. Do not join in it. It will end in my being conveyed into the house. Four or five minutes afterwards, the sitting room window will be open. You are to station yourself close to that window. You are to watch me, for I will be visible to you. And when I raise my hand, like so, you will throw into the room what I give you to throw, and will, at the same time, raise the cry of fire. It is nothing very formidable, he said, taking a long cigar-shaped roll from his pocket. It is an ordinary plumber's smoke rocket, fitted with a cap at either end to make it self-lighting. Your task is confined to that. When you raise your cry of fire, it will be taken up by quite a number of people. You may then walk to the end of the street, and I will rejoin you in ten minutes. I hope that I have made myself clear. I am to get near the window, to watch you, and at the signal, to throw in this object, then to raise the cry of fire, and to wait for you at the corner of the street. Precisely. I think, perhaps, it is almost time that I prepare for the new role I have to play. He disappeared into his bedroom, and returned in a few minutes in the character of an amiable and simple-minded nonconformist clergyman. His broad black hat, his baggy trousers, his white tie, his sympathetic smile and general look of peering and benevolent curiosity were such as Mr. John Hare alone could have equaled. It was not merely that Holmes changed his costume, his expression, his manner, his very soul seemed to vary with every fresh part that he assumed. The stage lost a fine actor, even as science lost an acute reasoner when he became a specialist in crime.
It was a quarter past six when we left Baker Street, and it still wanted ten minutes to the hour when we found ourselves in Serpentine Avenue. It was already dusk, and the lamps were just being lighted as we paced up and down in front of Bryony Lodge, waiting for the coming of its occupant. The house was just as I had pictured it from Sherlock Holmes's succinct description, but the locality appeared to be less private than I expected. On the contrary, for a small street in a quiet neighborhood, it was remarkably animated. There was a group of shabbily dressed men smoking and laughing in a corner, two guardsmen who were flirting with a nurse girl, and several well-dressed young men who were lounging up and down with cigars in their mouths. You see, remarked Holmes, as we paced to and fro in front of the house, this marriage rather simplifies matters. The photograph becomes a double-edged weapon now. The chances are that she would be as adverse to it being seen by Mr. Godfrey Norton as our client is to it coming to the eyes of his princess. Now the question is, where are we to find the photograph? It is most unlikely that she carries it about with her. She knows that the king is capable of having her waylaid and searched. Two attempts of the sort have already been made. We may take it, then, that she does not carry it about with her. Where, then? Her banker or her lawyer? There is that double possibility. But I am inclined to think neither. Women are naturally secretive, and they like to do their own secreting. Why should she hand it over to anyone else? She could trust her own guardianship, but she cannot tell what indirect or political influence might be brought to bear upon a businessman. Besides, remember that she had resolved to use it within a few days. It must be where she can lay her hands upon it. It must be in her own house. But it has twice been burgled. They did not know how to look, and I will get her to show me. Ah, but I hear the rumble of the wheels. It is her carriage. Carry out my orders to the letter. As he spoke, the gleam of the side lights of a carriage came round the curve of the avenue. As it pulled up, one of the loafing men at the corner dashed forward to open the door in the hope of earning a copper, but was elbowed away by another loafer who had rushed up with the same intention. A fierce quarrel broke out, which was increased by the two guardsmen who took sides with one of the loungers. A blow was struck, and in an instant the lady, who had stepped from her carriage, was at the center of a little knot of flushed and struggling men, who struck savagely at each other with their fists and sticks. Holmes dashed into the crowd to protect the lady, but just as he reached her, he gave a cry and dropped to the ground, with the blood running freely down his face. At his fall, the guardsmen took to their heels in one direction, and the loungers in the other, while a number of better-dressed people, who had watched the scuffle without taking part in it, crowded in to help the lady and to attend to the injured man. Irene Adler had hurried up the steps. 
but she stood at the top with her superb figure outlined against the lights of the hall, looking back into the street. Is the poor gentleman much hurt? she asked. No, no, there's life in him, shouted another, but he'll be gone before you can get him to the hospital. Bring him into the sitting room. There is a comfortable sofa. This way, please. Slowly and solemnly, he was brought into Briny Lodge and laid out in the principal room, while I still observed the proceedings from my post by the window. The lamps had been lit, but the blinds had not been drawn so that I could see Holmes as he lay upon the couch. I do not know whether he was seized with compunction at that moment for the part he was playing, but I know that I never felt more heartily ashamed of myself in my life than when I saw the beautiful creature against whom I was conspiring, or the grace and kindliness with which she waited upon the injured man. And yet, it would be the blackest treachery to Holmes to draw back now from the part which he had entrusted to me. I hardened my heart and took the smoke rocket from under my ulster. After all, I thought, we are not injuring her. We are but preventing her from injuring another. Holmes had sat up upon the couch, and I saw him motion like a man who is in need of air. A maid rushed across and threw open the window. At the same instant, I saw him raise his hand, and at the signal, I tossed my rocket into the room with a cry of, Fire! The word was no sooner out of my mouth than the whole crowd of spectators, well-dressed and ill, gentlemen, ostlers, and servant-maids, joined in a general shriek of, Fire! Thick clouds of smoke curled through the room and out at the open window. I caught a glimpse of rushing figures, and a moment later the voice of Holmes from within assuring them that it was a false alarm. Slipping through the shouting crowd, I made my way to the corner of the street, and in ten minutes was rejoiced to find my friend's arm in mine, and to get away from the scene of uproar. He walked swiftly and in silence for some few minutes, until we had turned down one of the quiet streets which lead towards the Edgware Road. You did it very nicely, Doctor, he remarked. Nothing could have been better. It is all right. You have the photograph. I know where it is. And how did you find out? She showed me, as I told you she would, he said laughing. The matter was perfectly simple. You, of course, saw that everyone in the street was an accomplice. They were all engaged for the evening. I guessed as much. Then, when the row broke out, I had a little moist red paint in the palm of my hand. I rushed forward, fell down, clapped my hand to my face, and became a piteous spectacle. It is an old trick. She was bound to have me in. What else could she do? And into her sitting room, which was the very room which I suspected. It lay between that and her bedroom, and I was determined to see which. They laid me on a couch, 
I motioned for air. They were compelled to open the window, and you had your chance. How did that help you? I asked. It was all important. When a woman thinks that her house is on fire, her instinct is at once to rush to the thing which she values most. A married woman grabs at her baby. An unmarried woman reaches for her jewel box. Now it was clear to me that Our Lady of today had nothing in the house more precious to her than that photograph. She would rush to secure it. The alarm of fire was admirably done. She responded beautifully. The photograph is in a recess behind a sliding panel, just above the right bell pull. She was there in an instant, and I caught a glimpse of it as she half drew it out. When I cried out that it was a false alarm, she replaced it, glanced at the rocket, rushed from the room, and I have not seen her since. And now, I asked, our quest is practically finished. I shall call with the king tomorrow and with you if you care to come with us. We will be shown into the sitting room to wait for the lady, but it is probable that when she comes, she may find neither us nor the photograph. It might be a satisfaction to his majesty to regain it with his own hands. And when will you call? At eight in the morning, so that we shall have a clear field. Besides, we must be prompt, for this marriage may mean a complete change in her life and habits. I must wire to the king without delay. We had reached Baker Street and had stopped at the door. He was searching his pockets for the key when someone passing said, Good night, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. There were several people on the pavement at the time but the greeting appeared to come from a slim youth in an ulster who had hurried by. I've heard that voice before, said Holmes, staring down the dimly lit street. I wonder who on earth that could have been. I slept at Baker Street that night, and we were engaged upon our toast and coffee in the morning when the King of Bohemia rushed into the room. We descended and started off once more for Briony Lodge. Irene Adler is married, remarked Holmes. It would spare your majesty of all fear of future annoyance. If the lady loves her husband, she does not love your majesty. If she does not love your majesty, there is no reason why she should interfere with your majesty's plan. We drew up in Serpentine Avenue. The door of Briny Lodge was open, and an elderly woman stood upon the steps. She watched us with a sardonic eye as we stepped from the cab. Mr. Sherlock Holmes, I believe, she said. I am Mr. Holmes, answered my companion, looking at her with a questioning and rather startled gaze. Indeed, my mistress told me that you were likely to call. She left this morning with her husband by the 5.15 train from Charing Cross for the continent. Sherlock Holmes staggered back, white with chagrin and surprise. Do you mean that she has left England? Never to return. Holmes pushed past the servant and rushed into the drawing room. 
followed by the king and myself. The furniture was scattered about in every direction, with dismantled shelves and open drawers, as if the lady had hurriedly ransacked them before her flight. Holmes rushed at the bell pull, tore back a small sliding shutter, and, plunging in his hand, pulled out a photograph and a letter. The photograph was of Irene Adler herself, in evening dress. The letter was superscribed to Sherlock Holmes. My friend tore it open, and we all three read it together. It was dated at midnight of the preceding night, and it read, My dear Mr. Sherlock Holmes, you really did it very well. You took me in completely. Until after the alarm of fire, I had not a suspicion. But then, when I found how I had betrayed myself, I began to think. I had been warned against you months ago. I had been told that if the king employed an agent, it would certainly be you, and your address had been given to me. Yet, with all this, you made me reveal what you wanted to know. Even after I became suspicious, I found it hard to think evil of such a dear, kind old clergyman. But, you know, I have been trained as an actress myself. Male costume is nothing new to me. I often take advantage of the freedom which it gives. I sent John, the coachman, to watch you, ran up the stairs, got into my walking clothes, as I call them, and came down just as you departed. Well, I followed you to your door, and so made sure that I was really an object of interest to the celebrated Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Then I, rather imprudently, wished you good night and started for the temple to see my husband. We both thought the best resource was flight when pursued by so formidable an antagonist, so you will find the nest empty when you call tomorrow. As to the photograph, your client may rest in peace. I love and am loved by a better man than he. The king may do what he will, without hindrance from one whom he has cruelly wronged. I keep it only to safeguard myself, and to preserve a weapon which will always secure me from any steps which he might take in the future. I leave a photograph which he might care to possess, and I remain, dear Mr. Sherlock Holmes, very truly yours, Irene Norton May Adler. What a woman, cried the King of Bohemia when we had all three read the letter. Did I not tell you how quick and resolute she was? Would she not have made an admirable queen? Is it not a pity that she was not on my level? From what I have seen of the lady, she seems indeed to be on a very different level to your majesty, said Holmes coldly. I am sorry that I have not been able to bring your majesty's business to a more successful conclusion. On the contrary, my dear sir, cried the king, nothing can be more successful. I know that her word is inviolate. The photograph is now as safe as if it were in the fire. I am immensely indebted to you. 
Tell me in what way I can reward you. You have but to name it. Holmes waved the papers in his hand. This photograph. The king stared at him in amazement. Irene's photograph, he cried. Certainly, if you wish it. I thank your majesty. Then there is no more to be done in the matter. I have the honor to wish you a very good morning. He bowed, and, turning away without observing the hand which the king had stretched out to him, he set off in my company for his apartment. And that was how a great scandal threatened to affect the kingdom of Bohemia, and how the best plans of Mr. Sherlock Holmes were beaten by a woman's wit. And when he speaks of Irene Adler, or when he refers to her photograph, it is always under the honorable title of the woman. Woman.